This episode of the podcast is without a sponsor. And I'd like to take this opportunity to just make a quick little call out. If you or anyone you know is interested in sponsoring the podcast, then please send an email to me at info at frontlinesmtb.com. Happy to talk about various rates, placements, and ad types, and just another way that we can keep this podcast going. Now on with the show. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Happy to be back after a winter break. Over the next two episodes, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Richard Edwards of Imba Trail Solutions. We spent over an hour chatting about various things, and I thought it best to not cut anything down for time. So this first half, we talk about the Trail Solutions program and start to crack into what we're seeing as a trail usage boom all over the world. But without any further delay, I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 83 of Frontlines. My guest is Richard Edwards. He's the founder and director of Imba Trail Solutions. Hey, Richard, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Brent. To begin, uh, you know, how how are you doing? I always like to check in with with folks right now. You know, family, work, sanity with respects to uh, to the the continuing pandemic has uh, has work life changed for you over the last year? It's uh, it's been a long, strange year, and uh, yeah, things certainly have changed. I'm a one of the uh, uh, three directors of Imbus Trail Solutions programs. And uh, it's impacted us in different ways. I would say this is my, uh, I've spent more time at home with my family in the past year than I have in the entire 21 years that I've worked for Imba. I've always had a goal of, uh, um, at least for the last uh, five years, of traveling less than 50% of the year. And this is the first year I've met that. Yeah, well. We've still traveled a bit. Travel's been challenging. With the construction teams, it was very challenging to, uh, as the onset of COVID came on, we were trying to figure out where things were going and what limitations we were going to work under. And when testing was relatively unavailable, it uh, there were some jobs that disappeared because of it. And uh, it was, uh, and then when the PPL program came on board, we suddenly went from we had just that day figured out how to get everybody home, get everybody on unemployment, and then we were mandated to get everybody back to work. And in two weeks, we got all our teams started back up on various jobs. That was rather exciting and stressful. Um, Mm -hmm. We like to, personally, I enjoy a fair amount of chaos and unknown. It's one of the reasons I like the trail planning, design, and construction. Um, But this was, uh, this year was special. But after, Mm -hmm. uh, say by August, it was just SOP, business as usual. Mm -hmm. At that point, we'd adapted and we were, uh, just rolling with it. You're dealing with the protocols and the travel restrictions. I will say I'm probably, uh, if Delta wasn't extending uh, their frequent flyer programs, I'd probably be losing my frequent flyer status. Um, <laughs> haven't been flying as much, been doing a lot more driving. Yeah. But yeah, a lot more time at home. And uh, so I've grown much closer to my family this year, which has been awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 been the, certainly a, a share same silver lining. You know, I had a I had a wonderful summer. You know, and it's it's just it was an opportunity to slow down 
a little bit, which is really good. You know, uh, the world will go back to normal, I'm sure. But, uh, but I think my values have shifted a little bit, which is, um, which is great. It did uh, make me uh, appreciate the privilege I have of uh, being in a position where I can do a lot of my work remotely Mm -hmm. and uh, made it that much more apparent of uh, socially some of the splits we have in this country where a lot of people have to either work face-to-face with other people or don't have the option to work remote. Our construction crews have to work. Luckily, they're in the woods and they can fairly, they can isolate pretty well and continue on with their work, but they do have to travel. But when we travel, we interact with a lot of frontline people who have no choice if they want to pay for their food or pay for their rent or uh, pay for their next bike. They are uh, having to interact with hundreds of people a day. And uh, those are oftentimes the people in our society that have the least financial assets. Um, And that's, uh, yeah, made that, uh, that that was much more apparent this year. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you've been with uh, IMBA for the last 21 years, and uh, you, along with uh, Joey Klein, founded Trail Solutions. And I, I certainly want to kind of dig into uh, Trail Solutions more and, and kind of hear more about that program. Um, but was uh, that kind of your first introduction into advocacy, or, or before kind of getting involved with IMBA, did you, uh, did you have kind of a prior start and, and introduction to the advocacy world out there? I was a trail volunteer when I lived in D.C., and uh, volunteered on some of the trails there and then went and uh, um, uh, my wife and I uh, rode our bikes off-road cross-country from Washington, D.C. to Moab, Utah. And uh, after that, and that definitely, part of that was we were looking for an off-road route across the country. And we found some places that was really great and some places, a lot of places that weren't so great. <laughs> and we ended up moving back to West Virginia to work for Elk River Touring, where we'd gotten engaged and married in Canaan Valley to uh, work as mountain bike guides. And that involved a certain amount of advocacy and trail maintenance, working with the forest service and keeping the trails in good condition, as well as guiding folks on rides. And then uh, went and uh, worked for Arizona Off-Road Adventures in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, similar, did a little trail work with the guiding. And while we were in uh, West Virginia, I had two IMBA trail build schools I attended that came to Elk River Touring Center. And I remember the first one, um, Kurt Lowheit. Kurt, if you're out there and you hear this, thank you again. I know you're still doing trail work. Thank you very <laughs> much. Kurt was one of the original folks who helped codify some of the um, stuff that Imba teaches about sustainable trails. And uh, he told us things that we thought were crazy in West Virginia. This man is teaching us to dig a hole in the side of the mountain, yeah. bench cut trail. Well, yeah. Two things come out of a hole in the side of the mountain in West Virginia, coal and water and mud. <laughs> we knew that was a bad idea. And that yeah. trail that... It's like, okay, didn't really buy into it. Yeah. Kurt, uh, Joey Klein and Kathy Summers came by and they did a trail care crew visit and uh, we built like 50 feet of trail and a clear cut. Yeah. Joey, Kathy, I, and a couple other people. And uh, that section of trail all summer long got firmer and harder and faster and everything else around it stayed kind of soggy and wet. And that section of trail just got better and better and better. It was like, okay, these folks have something. Um <laughs> <laughs> and working for Arizona off-road that winter in Tucson, we go to a trail building school and it's Joey and Kathy. This time we're building trail in the desert, being taught how to transplant cactuses. Got to get the orientation on some of them right so they survive transplanting. And uh, they essentially recruited my wife and I to uh, 
um, sign up for the trail care crew position. We'd originally thought the trail care crew idea was silly because it involved a lot of driving. And we just, uh, before we'd ridden our bikes across country, we'd spent a bunch of years living in DC without any cars. Mm. And we're very much involved in a, um, auto free DC and, uh, um, uh, bikes as transportation advocacy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, ended up on trail care crew and, uh, Joey and I got to do some amazing things and we found a couple other folks like, uh, um, Mark and Laura who, uh, joined this trail care crew and went on to, uh, lead Imba Canada and Mark's working for Parks Canada to this day. And, uh, Joey and I saw some of the things that were being done as trail care crew. We only went to a place for a weekend, sometimes like four or five parks in a weekend. We didn't stay very long and we saw more and more requests or folks wanted more assistance because in trail care crew, it was all about Johnny Appleseed. We take a good idea from one place and we teach it somewhere else and places that we saw ideas that we saw that worked everywhere. We try and teach those to everybody lowest common denominator, best practices. And, uh, we got sent to Wales. And there we ran into this kind of amazing thing. These folks were putting together these Welsh mountain bike centers. David Davis was the brainchild of this. And he wasn't really a mountain biker. He was, he was a surf bum, worked for the UK Forestry Commission, and wanted to have a way to revitalize the Welsh economy. And he determined that building mountain bike single track, a thing fairly unknown in the UK, most riding was on bridle trails or old roads on public right-of-ways. Um, there wasn't like public public land as we know it, large tracts of open space is not as a common thing. And the UK Forestry Commission actually owned forests. And David wrote a business plan um, that showed how they could generate 3% of the Welsh gross national product through mountain bike trails. And he deliberately built trail systems, all of them a specific within two hours drive of a major metropolitan area inside of England. Um, Imagine Wales is kind of like the West Virginia of the UK. (laughs) <laughs> post-extraction economy, um, uh, great potential for outdoor recreation, but was really focused on forestry. And uh, he changed the Forestry Commission's objectives to be more recreation-oriented because of the positive economic, they benefit, economic benefit they saw of building these trails. And he didn't set out to build. This is one thing that he did that really stuck with us, um, something that we really didn't adopt until somewhat recently, but that he didn't build trails for mountain bike enthusiasts he built trails for the average mountain biker because he knew that's where the greatest economic benefit was for the community. That if he built trail only for the hardcore, he would get a tiny fraction of the economic benefit. So he built trails that everybody could ride. And because of that, the mountain biking population exploded because he created an easy on-ramp to mountain biking um, and created purpose-built trails, intentionally went out to build mountain bike trails. And this was something else. It was like, okay, this idea of purpose-built And he got a lot of resources, European economic development grants. So he'd hired whole crews to help build these trails. And this was the first time we'd seen someone in a relatively short time period do something on that scale. He wasn't building a quarter mile of trail or doing a relocation or building a mile of trail. He was putting together systems of 30 to 50 miles at a time Hmm. and making them happen in a couple of years. Wow. And that, that flipped the switch. Joey and I were like, sitting in Italy on the rest of that visit, help working with a club there. And uh, we have to, we have to make this happen. We need, we can do something. We can, we can leverage that same kind of potential. There's so many places in the U S where we could make similar things to these trail centers happen. 
came back to the States and Tim Blumenthal, the then executive director of IMBA, who just retired from People for Bikes, being their ED, we sold Tim on the idea and kicked off the Trail Solutions program. How did things start with Trail Solutions? You know, what, um, what were some of the first projects that you tackled? Joey and I were the, we were the only folks for a while. And then Scott Lindenberger, who was Trail Care Crew, was, uh, um, he came on as a, our boss and director to manage us. And uh, we did a variety of things. Joey helped with the Black Canyon design, did a bunch of work on the Bonneville Shoreline Trail. I uh, worked with a variety of different contractors, essentially as a hired gun. I got to work with folks like Ed Sutton and Woody Keene with Trail Dynamics and learned an amazing amount. And then I got to work with the Lawn Cane Trails um, and helped put some of the, uh, um, the original work that led to the Fats Trail system happen in that part of the, uh, in South Carolina. We did a more education, worked with uh, the Maine Winter Sports Center, what's uh, developed into the Outdoor Sports Institute up in Maine, that's been doing trail development this whole time, and uh, did a number, did some projects um, in Harrisonburg, Virginia, where I chose to live after traveling around on Trail Care Crew and where I still live to this day. The uh, one of the uh, one I would say one of the most influential projects early on that Scott Lindenberger was our director for, um, and that he made happen. He was one of the folks that would uh, reach out and develop the partnerships because this is a critical thing as a as a trail designer and planner. You really need to cast a broad net for the opportunities that have uh, people in an agency that want to make it happen, people with funding that want to make it happen, enthusiastic community that wants to make it happen, a viable public open space. Those are all some of the pillars of a successful project. And there's way more potential projects than there are successful. But Scotty hit, um, he was talking to the Office of Florida Greenways and Trails. It's a brand new um, agency in Florida. They had this issue. They had a bootleg trail system and quasi-bike park. This is right at the beginning of the um, when there was this whole question about whether free riding and dirt jumping was part of mountain biking. And uh, um, that's a bit of a separate story. Uh, but, uh, we'd Imba at that point had come out strongly and said that free riding was part of mountain biking and that we should embrace all aspects of mountain biking and support it. And here was the situation in Florida where there was this extensively volunteer developed, though not permitted or they developed it. They didn't ask for permission, um, system that had a couple of gnarly lawsuits against it because there was ad hoc changes being made. And, the state decided it was more cost effective to legitimize, replan, and develop that system and manage it wisely than it was to put a fence around it and tell people they couldn't go in there. And so that led to Santos and uh, the redevelopment of the Vortex area in Santos with an amazing amount of support um, from the Ocala Mountain Bike Association and mountain bike volunteers from all over the state of Florida. I was, people were driving four hours to help come build free ride features. Office of Greenways and Trails provided us some equipment, and we put together an incredible team of people now that are largely still involved in the trails industry. Valerie Naylor, who's a, a well-renowned hired gun who works all over the world now, she was the land manager's representative. Greg Mezu, before he started Singletracks.com, was on that site. Delaware State Parks sent down a team and uh, equipment to learn how to run stuff. Judd Duvall, who uh, runs Alpine Bike, owner and operator Alpine Bike Parks, came down and helped out. Ben Blitch and uh, um, other folks, it was uh, 
a truly amazing mix of folks who all went on to be influential in the trails community afterwards and an amazing amount of volunteer support. And we put together, we put together what I believe to be the first public bike park on public land in the United States. Wow. There are other places before on ski resorts, but this was the first free open to the public place. Um, and we, uh, Joe Preisel, um, helped out with the dirt jumps. It was, uh, yeah, full rogues gallery of different builders. And, uh, it was definitely, we did it with, uh, um, it was largely done with passion. And, uh, we learned a lot from that. And, uh, but the same risk management principles that we used at that time, we continue to use to this day and allow us to build really challenging, potentially dangerous features and riding experiences that the public demands in a way that's well risk managed and limits landowners liability. Kind of fast forwarding a, a little bit, Trail Solutions uh, sounds like a, a, a much larger operation now. You're talking about having crews kind of all over the place. Uh, you know, give me a, a breakdown of of uh, this program. How many builders? How many projects uh, are going on at at any given time? So we are a program of Imba. It's a common question people ask if we're a separate company or not, and we're not. We've uh, um, we're a program that supports Imba's mission to create enhance and protect great mountain bike opportunities. And we do that through the work we do, whether it's through education, whether it's through planning, design, construction, construction management, maintenance, um, all of that is intended to help develop models, showcase techniques, mentor newer builders, develop their skills. We currently have a, a planning and design side run by Mike Repiak and a construction side run by Josh Olson. And we have, uh, we can operate up to two to four construction teams at a time. Those would be teams that are a combination of our staff. And a lot of times we bring in subs. Historically, we've done 30 to 35% of our work has been through subcontractors, um, partners that we bring in. Sometimes we've had some jobs that are almost all subcontractors and some that are all in the staff, but some of our best results are out of a mix of both. And that we uh, we like to do larger scale projects that allows us that flexibility to bring in subs, so we can. There's a, a wide variety of uh, skills and talents and interests within the mountain bike trail building community, and we try and match up the right builders with the right style of trail, their preferred style of trail or their preferred style of train to get the best outcomes. Some people are really good at riding rock because they really like to ride technical rock, or they're just skilled masons. Some people really like to build jumpy stuff. Some folks can build jumpy stuff that has really good progression. Other folks are just really big at building expert level stuff, but have trouble with the beginner stuff. So we try and make sure we put the best, uh, best builder in the right slot. And that's, uh, that's where we can have trail systems that are uh, one of the things we want to do is demonstrate the importance of a uh, large scale shared use trail systems with pockets of single use and a wide diversity of trail styles in there. That it's not one size fits all. It's not 30. We've learned some lessons. Over the years, Racetown Lake is a. We did not do the design, but we did the build for it, um, and we learned a lot there. And it's a, a highly desirable trail system because it provides something unique in the state of Pennsylvania and Central PA, which is a smooth trail tread or smoother than the traditional rock fest of Central PA. Central PA is like beautiful for techy techy rock stuff, but if you want smooth dirt, it can be in short supply. But the whole 
wholly legitimate criticism of Raystown Lake was that uh, the Alley Gerpers Trail system is that all 30 miles are relatively homogenous. Ride the first five miles, you've ridden most of it in, the, in terms of experience. So we, after that, we intentionally set out to bake in in the trail plan and the design process as much diversity into the trail systems as we could. That this trail is intentionally a rocky tech black diamond, whereas this trail is rocky tech, but of a, uh, an intermediate style. And this trail over here is intermediate, but it's more of a pump and bump. And this here is a green flow trail. And this is a black diamond jump trail. And then over here, we have a, a jump rock tech trail all being different, unique styles. And you could ride each one of those trails and say, yeah, that one was different than this one. Because that kind of diversity is what makes mountain biking awesome. You go different places, you ride different stuff. So how cool is it to ride a trail system and ride 15 different trail types in a day? And to be that way, if you're traveling there, irregardless of where you came from, or what kind of trails you like at home, you're going to find some stuff that feels a bit like home and hopefully find some stuff that you may have never ridden before. You know, I love that you're bringing in lots of different people, lots of different flavors. How does that also fit in regionally? Like, are you looking for to to kind of use some of these subcontractors that are close to these projects? Or are you bringing people from all over uh, North America to to build these projects? Well, that is somewhat budget dependent. <laughs> it's, uh, um, and there are a lot more builders now than there used to be. Mm. We've, uh, we, we've been really successful in helping develop builders and what I would call helping develop regions. We, we oftentimes work in areas in the past that were trail deserts and where the value of professionally built trail wasn't even understood and there were no professional builders. And we've left behind in our wake more and more professional builders every year. Um, and we understand that sometimes that's creating a, um, what some people may view as potential competition. We see that as developing more future partners for our mission. We're fee-based but we're fee-based to be able to do mission work. Mm. We're not fee-based to just generate revenue. <laughs> um, we, do some, we do generate positive revenue that helps support other IMBA programs as well, but that's not the end objective. Um, if we were just saying to make money, we would go do something more lucrative. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're in it to build awesome trail, and we ask for money so we can do more of that. And that's, uh, so, but we are very cognizant of budgets. And the time it takes and being cost effective and efficient with stuff. And that's uh, so who we can bring in is somewhat dependent on that. I will say the trail building industry was on fire for the uh, before last year, the preceding three or four years. It was very challenging to attract the subcontractors that we wanted to because of the long lead time required to retain people. Everybody had six to eight months of work stacked up. Wow. So no one was available. So it was definitely, uh, we did manage to bring some folks on and uh, we had some great work done, but uh, it's, uh, we found that we had to develop our team a little bit more as well in order to be able to be responsive on a short time frame. I did not mention one person who I should mention, who is uh, two people actually, who are really played an outsized role in both the development of IMBA's trail programs, both the books we put out in the knowledge and in inspiring us to inspiring trail solutions in IMBA to become what they, they, they have been with trails. And that's uh, Mike Ryder, who was one of the original trail care crew. He helped, you know, carve the trail for the rest of us to follow. And uh, secondly, Tony Boone of Tony Boone Trails and a variety of other trail entities. Man's been building trail as long as I've been legal to drink. 
<laughs> and having a great time doing it and showing love for the land and the culture and the support. He helped train us when we were original trail care crew. And then he helped, uh, helped us get some equipment and taught us how to run a dozer back in the day. And, uh, Tony's been a great partner, advocate and uh, cohort ever since. And now he's, uh, um, he's doing some really cool things with trail education with Trinidad college. So, uh, everybody who likes to ride a mountain bike in the Western landscape, whether you ride a trail built by Tony or not, probably own Tony a debt of gratitude because he inspired a whole bunch of us. Due to COVID, we're seeing an, an increase of, of trail usage, I think, all over the world. And, and I think we're anecdotally, we're seeing that just by going out on the trails. But I think we're starting to see some of the, the trail counts and, and parking lot numbers and that kind of stuff that, that this is definitely uh, we're in a boom right now for trail usage. What has that meant for, for trail networks and trail associations? Well, I'll hit on a positive note and then I'll hit on a more challenging note. <laughs> on the positive side, because two things happened this year. We all got st- told to stay home mm-hmm. and not socialize. Um, and there was a pretty large awakening about the current state of segregation in the past racial history in our country. Mm-hmm. And uh, this has led to a uh, a great interest in increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion in outdoor recreation. Um, so as we traveled around this year, greatly reduced travel, but still travel. And I looked at the trails. I, my focus for the past 10 years has largely been the Southeastern United States. Mm-hmm. So this is a part of the country that has a large population of people of color. Mm-hmm. And we've been building trail systems these full spectrum progressive trail systems with easy on ramps and easy trails up the more difficult trails, well signed with good choices throughout the Southeast. And we found this year that those trails, if we had trail systems like that in or adjacent to established communities of color, that there was a lot of diversity in the ridership on those trails. And those folks hadn't been mountain bikers six months before. And they didn't come to the trails through a traditional mechanism. They weren't joining their local bike club. They weren't going to the bike shop. They were going online. They were figuring out where the trails were. They were buying a bike online. And they were just discovering mountain biking raw. And generally, they were doing it as part of an affinity group. So they weren't necessarily doing it solo. But a group of people would be like, hey, we have to get outside. Let's go try this mountain biking thing. And... uh yeah, seemed to, this seemed to be a steady theme. We saw a lot of new people on bikes, but the level of diversity, if those trails were in places where the, the general demographics was more diverse, was much higher than it's been in past years. And that was, uh, we saw that as an awesome thing. And uh, I'll just say, for the record, I find, uh, well, I may not personally enjoy crowded trails. Anytime <laughs> I see a crowded trail... That is a huge victory. Every time I see somebody on a bike and they're obviously new to it, their clothes don't fit or they got too much jacket on or their helmets on backwards or they're riding when it's muddy. (laughs) That's a victory. And that's someone new who's at like probably the most fragile part of their mountain biking experience. Mm -hmm. They're new to it and they could be on the cusp where that bike goes back to gather dust in the garage or they become an enthusiast. 
And a lot of that depends upon the interactions they have and the experience they have. I've let a lot of strangers ride my bike this year. General practice, if I run into somebody who's new to it and I ask them if I can ride with them, and if their bike's not working well, I stick them on my bike if they're going to fit. And uh, give them the glimpse of like, oh, oh, wow, this is a lot more fun on your bike. <laughs> yep, yep, little fatter tires, better fork, make a big difference. <laughs> um, and I can't believe you. And it's a good, good practice for me, especially right, uh, building beginner trails. You get a really lousy beginner experience riding around on a $2,000 bike. <laughs> you should get on a $500 bike that hasn't been made, tuned up and has loose axles. Yeah. And uh, that's a very much better approximation of the beginner experience. <laughs> Yet still fun, you know, and this is what I love about mountain biking is it doesn't matter what you're riding. It's still fun. It's the best part of it. Um, But man, bikes, uh, it is to ride a bike from the late nineties and then to ride a current bike. It is uh, just in terms of even hardtail to hardtail, just in terms of geometries and fatter tires and single chain ring. Yeah basic technological changes that have really made it much less challenging to become a mountain biker. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the drawback is there are a lot more people on these trail systems. Yeah. And so visitor conflict, visitor conflict is uh, defined as like goal interference. And it generally comes a driving mechanism of it is uh, um, visitor density. Now, almost all visitor conflict is, when it occurs and the carrying capacity of the trail, basically when the trail reaches the point where it starts to generate visitor conflict on a regular basis, that point at which it does that was determined by the trail planner and then the trail designer. Um, the trail alignment and the trail construction all determine the carrying capacity of the trail and whether visitor conflict is going to be an issue when certain types of use mix or how, what density it starts to become an issue. There's a lot of things you can do in planning and design to mitigate and prevent future visitor conflict or to increase the carrying capacity of a trail system. Shared use systems with pockets of single use. Pockets of single use are a super important safety valve. Both hiking only trails for the folks who really don't want to be disturbed and bike specific trails. So when we want to ride in a way that really isn't appropriate on a shared use trail, we can ride that way and push that experience envelope. That's, that's, it's, it's just vital for us as mountain bikers. If we see a trail system that doesn't have pockets of single use mountain bike trail, I can almost guarantee you that there are some non-system mountain bike trails there or nearby. <laughs> or they're complaining about illegally built trails because they're unable to meet the visitor expectations within the limits they've put on their trail system. If it's yeah. all shared use for everybody, well, if that's working, that's probably because it's all shared use in name only. Yeah. And your visitors have somewhat split up into different areas and are optimizing those trails for their own, their own purposes. Shared use systems with pockets of single use. Um, and then directionality. Just uh, take a theoretical example. You got a five mile loop and uh, you got a hundred people on the loop at the same time. If half of them are going one way and half are going the other way. You're going to interact with half of those people. Mm-hmm. If you're all going the same direction, the only people you're going to interact with are the people that are going much faster than you or much slower. Mm-hmm. And you can have a lot more people. And this is how you can have a, you pull into the trailhead. It's full of cars. There's 30 cars in the trailhead. You go out in the trail, you come back to the parking lot, you saw 10 people. 
and there's 30 cars in the parking lot and 29 of them are different than when you parked there. Yeah. And, uh, that directionality, but to make directionality work, you've got to f- plan that into the trail system from the get go. Cause if you have odd number intersections, mm. your directionality is probably not going to work. Interesting. It's got to be four. It's got to be even numbered intersections. There's got to be four trails come together. If you have three, one of those trails, and this is also important if you want to maximize loop options for managing events, four-way intersections are critical. Three-way intersections means you've always got a segment that's not being used. Interesting. Help me better understand that a little bit. So just kind of walk me through what you're referring to there. Draw a series of circles and yeah. have them all touch. Yeah. Each touch point's a four-way intersection. Gotcha. You can do that loop. You can do that loop and go on to the next loop and then come back and make a figure eight. Now take those two loops and split them and draw a line in between them. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a dog bone. Mm-hmm. You can only use one of those loops for an event. Hmm. And if you want to make it directional, how do you make that middle section directional and get to the other section? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's also, it's really typical if you've got three-way intersections, like let's say you've got two three-way intersections, you've got two loops that come together and they overlap say 200 yards mm-hmm. well that section is 200 yards at some point if someone comes to an intersection and you tell them they've got to go right and it's three miles to get to where they want or they can go left and it's 200 yards to get to where they want but that's also up the downhill which we've seen um you're really giving people a huge incent to ride their bikes up the downhill trail to get to the intersection to make the next turn they want to interesting so that's where the four-way, and sometimes that means um, that building the intersections is a little more challenging. It definitely means that citing them. We find that citing intersections for multi-segment trails, the most challenging thing to cite, the most terrain constraints to cite them effectively, um, especially because intersections are our best opportunity, one of our great opportunities for visitor conflict. If some of those trails are open to one use and not open to the other, we need to slow everybody down gracefully before intersections we don't want to give them power-ups right before an intersection so they come in with a bunch of heat we want to like take that kinetic energy away from them gracefully turn them uphill a little bit so finding places where you can have four or six trails come together at one spot and uh, no one's slamming on their brakes rolling into the intersection um requires a creative use of a landscape and on a site you may not have a lot of those spaces saddles saddles are classic great places for multi for hub intersections like that the other part about this is sight lines and this is something i would say that uh probably two of the biggest failings of mountain bike current mountain bike trail planning and design both on um both volunteers and professionals um is uh far too much shared use trails that are pushed as bike optimized or just a failing to consider other visitors developing an entire trail system throughout a community with no consideration for pedestrians when you're in everyone's backyards and that's where they live and not everybody's a mountain biker. Um, it's just doing the same thing hikers used to do to us. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, sight lines. Well, our bikes are, we, we go fast now, we roll. And, uh, and this is really one of the only ways, and I'll say something that maybe uh, – get some people's hair on ends here. This is the only place I see e-bikes being a really big issue is on certain types of trails, uh, low grade climbs. They do significantly reduce it. Low grade, uh, low grade climbs and descents in the five to 7% category, even up to 10. They definitely, uh, 
increased closing velocity, that being the speed of both riders added together. And uh, looking at people's feet per second and how far away you can see another visitor. Because this uh, sight lines come into play. It's a lot about startling people. Even if we weren't concerned about running into each other, a lot of it's about that, that goal, going back to that goal interference. Think about why someone else is out in the woods. They've had a rough day at work. They want to get out in the woods. They're looking for their Rinshin Yoko or their Zen moment. They want to have their Thoreau moment and, uh, you know, let the worries of the world wash away from them and be recharged and uh, get relaxed. And they're finally, that tension is going away and they're walking down the trail. And they're effectively at that point, if they're by themselves, in a fairly private space. You don't feel like you're in public at that point. You're having a fairly private moment. And then all of a sudden, you're forced into a very sudden and abrupt social interaction. Because suddenly, there's somebody on a bike right in front of you. And you didn't have that like two or three or five seconds to mentally go from like, oh, hey, here someone's coming. I'm going to say hello, or I'm going to put a smile on. Suddenly, that person's right there. And maybe... They're moving quickly. Well, they are moving quickly. Maybe they're throwing gravel because they're trying to slow down. Now, from the cyclist's perspective, they just went from 25 miles an hour down to 12 miles an hour. They dumped their speed in half. The cyclist is like, you know, I'm rolling down the trail. I feel totally comfortable. I could pass that guy at 25. No problem. He's effectively standing still. Yeah. But so I slow down. I, I, I totally dumped my speed. I dropped my flow. I've lost my rhythm. And uh, hey, how you doing? I did everything right. Yeah. But at the same time, I probably totally dropped his buzz that he had walking in the woods. Yeah. And he has to start back. And now he's all tense again and trying to get that, um, get that, get that calm and quiet sense back. So that's a part of the sight lines is just giving people a couple seconds to change from that private space to that public space. Mm -hmm. Hey, here comes someone. I'm going to have to say hello. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. When I'm walking in the woods, I talk to myself. Um, so it's embarrassing <laughs> when someone shows up out of nowhere and I'm still talking to myself. <laughs> That's great. Um, we've had we've had Mark Schmidt on uh, on the show. This is, I think, very early on in the podcast. He he used the term goal interference as well. So clearly, this is something that um, uh, that folks at at Imba and and you know perhaps some of the other names that you've mentioned kind of came up with who who was maybe the first person to kind of use this terminology because when we think of user conflict you know it, it and and mark spoke to this too in that episode where it's not people running into people and, and you mentioned this as well right um but where did this this concept of goal interference kind of start um roger moore uh conflicts and multiple use trails um and roger moore is uh he was associate professor at a north carolina university at that point and uh, he wrote back 94, he wrote a synthesis of a bunch of the other stuff of the literature. And, uh, you know, that, that he, that's where we pulled the um, goal interference from. Gotcha. And Mark and I, Mark and I w- worked together at uh, IMBA and then in Trail Solutions. So that's definitely some of, the, uh, some of the initial discussions. He was there when we were writing the Trail Solutions book. And Visitor Conflict, again, 20 years ago, we were not mountain bikers did not have the credibility we have now it is it is it is amazing where we are now at that point we had land managers major partners 
come to us and say, you can't have that picture on your membership literature. The picture that showed the bike three inches off the ground. <laughs> that looks like people are going fast. Our, our leadership will push back on that. You'll never get access to our properties if you use pictures like that. We had a huge debate at the Emba Summit in 2001, started as a working group, went on to like three in the morning. Woody Keene of Trail Dynamics, now Trail Wisdom, ex-Emba board member was there and uh, helped lead some of the discussion. And it was all about, is this new school dirt jumping, free riding thing really mountain biking? And it was amazing. In the room, there was definitely a lot of people who you could have taken the word dirt jumping out and put the word mountain biking in, and they would have sounded like the same hateful old Red Sox guys that didn't want us on their trails in New Jersey. Yeah, They sounded just like the crusty hikers hating on mountain bikers. But these were mountain... And what were they saying? Things that probably sound pretty current right now. Yeah. If you've been on the NEMBA Facebook page, you're going to get our trails closed. You're not real mountain bikers. What you're doing is dangerous. It's going to cause problems. Land managers will close our trails because of which how you guys ride. But now we're talking about e-mountain bikes. Yeah. Back then yeah. we were talking, I mean, remember the restrictions on a, what was it, Mammoth? You weren't allowed to have certain types of bikes or certain types of chain rings. That that, that, that kind of riding wasn't, they, they tried to restrict the technology of mountain bikes um, to only cross-country bikes. Oh, wow. The, uh, the, and that's, there was a lot of soul searching then. And it was like, no, these folks on the little wheels and these folks bringing dirt jumping into mountain biking. Cause that was back then there wasn't dirt jump mountain bikes. There was downhill sleds and super lightweight race bikes. There wasn't these awesome enduro bikes. And no, we need, we, we can't afford to fracture the community. We need these folks may be different. Well, they don't have the trail ethics or the land ethics. It's like, well, let's teach them that. <laughs> let's, let's help them do that. And yeah, 10 years later, we're building dirt jumps. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, um, and, 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 and able to advocate for single use mountain bike trail and shuttle trails. And the, suddenly that's all legitimate and seen as part of the sport. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to, uh, still be riding when my preferred pedal, a hard tail around, um, is viewed much like cross country skiing is now in terms of the larger ski industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, um, the, the, the bike-specific um, resort-style trails seem to be hugely popular and where a lot of the new look at a town like Bentonville and take any ask any mountain biker under 25 what their preferred trail style is, and it's not going to be crusty traditional single track. The second part of my conversation with Richard Edwards will be available in two weeks on February 19th. This episode of the podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, Musqueam, and Stolo Nations. My guests joined me from the traditional territory of the Manahoak. If you're curious to learn more about the traditional territory that you occupy and recreate on, then visit native-lands.ca. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesNTB. You can also join the Facebook group at Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. And you can send me an email or an audio file to info at frontlinesmtb.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. And a big thanks to Susie, Kyle, Ernest, and Jake for their donations over the past month. 
Don't forget that you can support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes along with a link to the Frontline's MTB Book Club where a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. In the show notes, you'll also find links to Imba, Trail Solutions, and a number of links that Richard has sent over. So check those out. During my conversation, I reference a previous episode with guest Mark Schmidt of Parks Canada. That was episode 29, and there's a link to it in the show notes. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and VGW Creative. And a big thanks to Ben Welnick and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.